0: Aqua LEDs and aqua lesses welcome to a very special edition of Starman. That's right, folks. Welcome back to Starman here in the Aqua Cave. As my good buddy Gary Michael Capetta told you up front, folks, today you are in for a special treat. As you know, Here on Starman, we've been taking a look at the list of Dave Meltzer's absolutely worst-reviewed matches. It just so happens that this is Episode 3 of Starman Negative 2. We've got a couple episodes in the can already, out now on the Aqua Cave that you can listen to, if you haven't already, where we cover the first handful of matches uh, that are on the list that are ranked Negative 2 stars. Well, folks, as I mentioned This is Starman, negative two, episode three, Revenge of the Shit. That is correct. You heard me. So, fans, this is going to be a first ever happening here on Starman. Now, this list is long and distinguished, much like Sliders Johnson, okay, But at the same time, every once in a while, we come across a very special treasure that deserves a lot of our attention. And today, folks, we have that very special match that is worthy of being the only case that we will try in today's courtroom proceedings. For the first time ever in the history of Starman, there's only one match to talk about. And you know, it takes... A very special type of match uh, to find itself in this position. Okay, it's a one of a kind match. It's a match that has many special stipulations, and these many special stipulations uh, never before and never again. And you might think you know what I'm talking about, but you don't because it's not the kennel from hell. That will come later, folks. Today on the docket, we are going to be traveling to a very, very magical time. Uh, The Kidsters, or or I guess the adults, not the Kidsters, because we're all adults now, we called it 1991. Specifically, October 27th, 1991. But just knowing the date and knowing that we're talking about a wrestling match is not enough to properly put you all in the proper mindset. As you know, before I go before the judge and present the evidence, I always like to give a little bit of context to the match that we're going to be watching and talking about. So I think in order to have the proper context for this particular match, we're going to have to know a whole hell of a lot about what was going on in our collective consciousness at this time. So October 27th, 1991, well... It was a Sunday, and this day uh, was the home of Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, where the Minnesota Twins defeated the Atlanta baseball team 1-0 to in 10 innings. Now that means that in Johnny C's life, I would have been moving into the home that I would have lived at for most of my childhood. Because I remember uh, watching the 1991 World Series in the kitchen on a very little, tiny, yellow television. Uh, At least I think it was yellow. Uh, And watching the 1991 World Series while sitting on the floor in an empty house eating some Hardee's. That's right, folks. For all you kids who weren't around in the 90s or who don't live in crazy fucking states like West Virginia that still have them, Hardee's is a fast food restaurant. It's absolutely fucking disgusting. However, I definitely have a soft spot in my heart for the sourdough burger. It's just a burger on a sourdough bun, but man... The life and times of Hardee's in my local hometown, alright? I used to play roller hockey right next to a Hardee's. And folks, what I tell you, I used to play roller hockey next to a Hardee's. What I really mean is I used to sit in a Hardee's and eat while my friends were playing roller hockey. Sure, I played every once in a while. But the draw of the big cookie, alright? if you're not familiar with the big cookie of Hardee's, <laughs> fuck guys, <laughs> it was like 99 cents. And it wasn't just a big cookie. It was a big cookie, all right? And to tell you the truth, I didn't have it in my notes to talk about the big cookie, but it's all coming back to me in a wave of nostalgia, and so I'm going to allow it. But yeah, man, uh, Hardy's also, you know, they brought out the fried chicken later on in the 90s. Holy shit. I haven't thought of Hardy's in forever. The number one movie in America was a paradigm shift, letting uh, the adults in the room know that, uh, the youth culture was now in charge because House Party 2, bigger than House Party 1. Uh, is House Party 2 the pajama jam? Or is that House Party 3? Or, it, it, well, no, House Party 4 is the one with uh, the dudes, the kids from Immature, I think is what they were known as. Uh, not so much now. Uh, featuring, uh, God, I don't, I don't remember who the lead is, but I know his name is John John, if I'm not mistaken. I remember randomly catching House Party 4 on TV while pre-gaming one night when I was in college. Yes, I was in college pre-gaming. I would not have been pre-gaming in high school, but I remember laughing my tits off at House Party 4. It was awful, but I was drunk, so it was pretty fucking funny. I don't even know if I've seen House Party 2. I know I've seen House Party 1 numerous times, but I don't recall House Party 2. And how is class act not a part of the house party cinematic universe I mean if you're if you are the uh, financial backers of the Kid and Play film Class Act how are you sitting there being like no I just want the house party kids in college give me that I don't want class act damn it I want house party college. I don't know. I just don't understand why they would do that. But they did. But yeah, House Party 2, number one movie in America. Now, the number one song on the Billboard charts was Romantic by Karen White. I don't, I'm not really too familiar with that track. And I apologize to all the Karen White fans out there. Oh, wait, is she the chick who sings that Hill song? i running up the hill. I'll make a deal with Christ. And I'm gonna let Stranger Things out. Uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch had recently dropped an anthem on the world that would ensure that sports movies oriented towards children would always have a go-to song when they need a montage because Good Vibrations was new on the scene. The number one song of the year, uh, which was coming rapidly to a close, would be the hit Brian Adams song, Everything I do, I do for you. Oh. You know, I remember when Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out in the summer of 91. It's actually one of the few uh, memories I have of my childhood when all five members of my family attended a movie at the exact same time. You know, it was difficult to do. I saw a lot of movies in the summer. You know, Mom was a teacher, uh, Summer Breaks and what have you. I got two siblings and a Pops. Uh, my Pops wasn't big for going to the movies. He loves movies, but he was never really a fan of going. I know, I know for a fact, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, we all five saw together. And we saw Last Action Hero and Jurassic Park together in the same day in the summer of 93. Other than that, that's the only time I can remember all five of us being in a movie theater together. But I remember Robin the Prince of Thieves like it was yesterday. Sir, why a spoon? Because it'll hurt more, you twat. Yeah, because Sheriff Nottingham's going to cut his heart out with a spoon. Great fucking line, great performance. Believe it or not, kidsters, the fantastic uh, world-changing album Nevermind by Nirvana was only one month old when this match took place clearly ushering in a new era in music and professional sports-based entertainment as well. On the small screen, Roseanne and Murphy Brown were battling for not only ratings, but also for the soul of a nation on primetime television. Both shows featuring female leads, which was a breakthrough concept at the time, and, and, you know, great an awesome thing. I don't want to throw shade on that, but, man... Could you not think of two distinctly different television programs with two distinctly different agendas than Roseanne and Murphy fucking Brown? I mean, what a time to be alive. I remember not much of these shows, but I do remember watching that episode of Roseanne where she OD'd and laughing my ass off. So hey, what are you gonna do? Shouldn't have taken them pain pills, Rosie. But, uh, you know, Dan, where's my Oxycontin, Dan? Anywho, the Super Nintendo recently struck uh, a chord with the youth of America. It was just one week shy of being two months old here on the American shores. Fucking crazy to think about. In the world stage, the Doomsday Clock, which is the clock that is, uh, you know, governed by the Board of Atomic Scientists that uh, is supposed to be a gauge for how close the world is to midnight. Now, what does midnight mean? Midnight is death, uh, usually through nuclear holocaust, but it can also be basically the end of the world as we know it, based on human intervention. So, the Cold War had just quote-unquote ended, so the doomsday clock was safe at 17 minutes to midnight. Just for some context, the doomsday clock is currently 100 Seconds to midnight here on what is recording date, July 15th, 2022. Fuck me sideways. As the year would close out, Ted Turner would be named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Ted was receiving this award primarily for being the innovative mind that created CNN which, in the year 1991, allowed us to view Operation Desert Storm in real time. These unprecedented views of the horrors of war would change the way humanity would view and interpret conflict forever. He was also the financial backer of the pay-per-view that would bring us a war of its own, a war that would change the face of sports entertainment forever. A war that could only be contested in the confines of the Chamber of Horrors. Horrors, 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 horrors. That's right, folks. It's Halloween Havoc 1991 from Chattanooga, Tennessee in the UTC Arena, home of In Your House Final Four. A much better, well... I don't know if it's a much better overall pay-per-view, but the Final Four match is better than the match that we're going to be talking about this evening. I can guarantee it. Now, let's talk about some actual wrestling context now that we better understand the state of the union as it was in 1991. In a fantastic cartoon intro, a little haunted house shows us images of some of tonight's combatants, including number one contender Ron Simmons. Legendary waste of time and money, El Higante. Current WCW heavyweight champion of the world, Lex Luger with his manager, Harley Race. WCW mainstay, Sting! As well as Barry Windham, even though he's not cleared medically to compete. Uh, as our animated haunted house fades away, we do see the UTC arena. That classic d- dark Colored, tinted WCW mat with a blue, black, and yellow, if I'm interpreting the colors correctly, uh, ropes. And uh, the ring tonight, well, it's surrounded by a giant cage-type structure. Um, You could say it kind of looks like the Hell in a Cell, but it has an opening uh, with diagonal walls at the top, so you can't really climb out. And the bars are very long Um, I know that, you know what, just fucking Google it if you've never seen it before. But in a fantastic moment that could only happen in WCW, a little bit of pyro kicks off the show. Nothing spectacular. And so we cut to Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. As Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone start leading us through the matches for the evening, the full-blown pyrotechnics go off out of camera view uh, as the announcers look very perturbed and pissed that it's happening while they're already on camera. Now, Jim Ross lets us know, Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross here, fans, we've already had some changes to tonight's matchups, and for more information, let's go to Eric Bischoff. We cut to some previously recorded footage of a very young Eric Bischoff, who's going to attempt to interview some of tonight's athletes as they arrive to the arena. Thank God he was here for this assignment to capture what would happen and change the complexion of the Chamber of Horrors match forever. So, the first two athletes... (laughs) athletes, to arrive, are Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher. Cactus is wearing his Sunday best sweatpants, if you will, and it's very strange to see Cactus Jack in 1991 dressed as the Mick Foley character, and I'm immediately thinking, was it a good idea to get these guys in their non-combatant costumes? As Cactus Jack exits the car, Bischoff offers a handshake and is met with BANG BANG! Abdullah comes up behind Eric, and I'm not sure if it's his Halloween costume or his everyday attire, but holy shit, Abdullah the Butcher is dressed just like the dad from The Wonder Years. He's got the short sleeve button down, tucked into some dress pants, and a tie. But he's also carrying a stick with a shrunken head on it, so he's still in character. Another bang bang, and these crazy combatants flee the scene. A young valet arrives and takes away the car, to uh, you know, clearly to go park it. I mean, valet parking for these guys, I mean, that's just one of the perks of being a Ted Turner-owned sports entertainer in 1991. You get your own valet to park your car. Uh, Eric ponders who could possibly be underneath the mask of the WCW Halloween Phantom, who indeed will be competing tonight in a match against, I think, the goddamn Candyman. But I could be wrong. I didn't actually look that up. Well, folks, spoiler alert, I've read uh, issue number four of Marvel Comics World Championship Wrestling, where the WCW Phantom wrestles a match and then unmasks on the final page, and I know it's ravishing Rick Rude. Up next, a very, very small sports car arrives, and, em- and out of this car emerge a- an absolutely gigantic Scott Hall and Diamond Dallas Page behind the driver's seat. Now, as DDP gets in the clear view of camera, I can't help but notice that somehow he looks older than he did when he was in the prime stages of his wrestling career. What the fuck is up with this guy, man? <laughs> he says, Yo, they got you parking cars now, Bischoff monkey? Come on, stud, let's go. Eric Bischoff tries to get a final word, but DDP offers, See ya! a staple of 1991 uh, slander-based slogans, if you will. The young valet arrives once again to take away the stud mobile, as Eric Bischoff reminds us that tonight, Brian Pillman has an opportunity to become the first WCW light heavyweight champion of the world. Up next, a red car arrives with a top-down, so we've got some folks who are clearly cruising Chattanooga looking for some ladies. But... As the young valet opens the door, so Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes can exit from this red lady-hunting mobile, <laughs> uh, Barry Windham offers a hand to Eric Bischoff, but out of nowhere, Arn Anderson and Jim Belushi arrive and slam Barry Windham's hand into the door. Now, these hooligans abscond away. Dustin tries to give chase, but Barry yells, Dustin, uh, it's broken! So Dustin gets Barry back in the car and drives away quickly to the hospital. We're back into the arena now. The Chamber of Horrors, again, stands with its ominous presence surrounding the ring. So, uh, we're going to dive deeper into some context here, okay? We've got a team of baby faces that are going to be fighting a team of heels in the Chamber of Horrors, alright? So, the heel team was originally supposed to be Oz, that being big sexy, uh, Barry Windham, the One Man Gang, and the Diamond Stud versus the Baby Faces. So tonight, the changes are... Oz will now be portrayed by Cactus Jack. Now, I don't know why Cactus Jack wasn't in this match to begin with, considering what the fucking point of the match is. But and, and there's no explanation given as to why Oz is unable to participate in this matchup. And I think he even wrestles later on the card, so I don't know. Barry Windham will now be portrayed by Big Van Vader. A duel of the Butcher is taking over the role of the one-man gang. And Scott Hall will be portraying the Diamond Stud. As Jim Ross uh, gives the broadcast over to our ring announcer, Gary Michael Capetta, I'm super excited. And I don't know what show it was on, but I love to have fun at Gary Michael Capetta's expense. This guy is just fucking ridiculous when it comes to announcing the rules of wrestling matches. I don't know who writes these scripts for him to read. I'm going to pretend it's him, though, because it ruins the joke if it's not. He finds the most complex ways to describe very simple wrestling rules. I would dare say he makes it more complicated than it should be. Uh, And if you want any further proof of this, just watch any WCW pay-per-view that features war games where he is the announcer. But... I did get verbatim the rules for the Chamber of Horrors because I know, folks, if you haven't seen this match, you've never seen another Chamber of Horrors match because it didn't happen. So, uh, allow me to introduce to the Aqua Cave a very special guest, Gary Michael Capetti. Gary, come on in here. If you would, please, could you read us the rules for the Chamber of Horrors match? Yes, I can. Ladies and gentlemen, the first contest of... Halloween Havoc from Chattanooga, Tennessee is the Chamber of Horrors. This special attraction will involve two teams, each team consisting of four team members. The match will be confined to the Chamber of Horrors, which is equipped with several instruments of torture. The object of the match is to put a member of the opposing team in the Chamber of Horrors Chair of torture and then pull the fatal lever, which will render one of the teammates helpless. And now, the participants in our electrifying first contest. Thank you, Gary. We'll, we'll get you back in here when we start talking about the folks. Okay, now. Some generic glam rock synthesizer-style track starts playing as our teams make our entrances. It's kind of like a porn parody version of Kenny Loggins' Welcome to the Danger Zone. As our team members start coming down the aisle, we do get a close-up of what's known as the Fatal Lever. Which is just a switch. A big, giant switch. Uh, And the chair of torture, I should mention, is just a fucking electric chair in quotation marks, it's in the center of the ring, okay? So you basically got a Hell in a Cell match with a chair in the middle of the ring and a fatal lever that must be pulled, uh, or I guess to set off the chair. Well, I, I know what it is, but I'm trying to be a flippant about it, all right? So this next little context piece blows my, my fucking mind, okay? Because we get representing team number one, El Higante, which is fine, I guess, because El Higante is on the babyface team. So out next, I'm thinking is going to be the tag team that's on uh, the good guy team. But no. And now representing team number two, Big Van Vader. And I was like, okay. so are they going to be Are they, you know, are they doing a good guy, a bad guy, a good guy, a bad guy? Because I was thinking, well, that means that Sting won't come out last because you go you go good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. You know, it just like fucking WCW, man, like early 90s WCW, like before they got their shit together, like they just have no idea how to fucking produce content. And I'm not saying that I do, okay, but come the fuck on. Now, one of the folks that makes it onto the broadcast in the entranceway is not a member of team number two, because as Big Van Vader's walking down the aisle, we do see a random WCW technician wearing some fucking Zumbaz pants that's got a fucking cigarette hanging out of his mouth that has to close the door of the haunted house that these fucking combatants walk out of, because there's a haunted house entrance stage. It's fucking hilarious. Also representing team number 2 from the diamond mine the diamond stud Diamond stud of course is Scott Hall with a toothpick and he looks huge and now ladies and gentlemen from team number 2 so just to keep this clear we've got one person from team number 1 and now we're going to have three people from team number 2 coming out and and what why are the heels team number two and the good guys team number one? Why don't you just have Stinger Squadron or the dudes? Like, I don't just... Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Anyway, uh, out, number, out next from team number two, carrying a chainsaw, is Kick This! Jack! Wrestling fans, yes, he fucking said wrestling fans, I couldn't believe it, there's like 16 exclamation points behind the phrase wrestling fans in my notes, (laughs) wrestling fans, representing team number one, now we're back to team number one, in the chamber of horrors, the Steiner Brothers! And a complete side note here, it was super nice of the heels to wait for the bell to ring in this match that's designed for death and destruction. Because up until this point, you've got El Gigante in the ring with Scott Hall, Vader, and fucking Cactus Jack. It's just... I don't know. I don't know. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the final member of team number two, Abdullah the Butcher! And ladies and gentlemen, rounding out team number one. The Danger Zone porn music stops, and we get This is Sting! Now, Sting is the current WCW United States Heavyweight champion, according to the WCW Top 10. Uh, WCW Magazine Top 10. Number 10, Dizzy Man. Number 9, Flying Brian. Number 8, Terrence Taylor. Number 7, Ice Train. Number 6, Glacier. Number 5, fucking Barry Windham. Number 4, Larry Zabisco. Number three, current television champion, Son and Steve Austin. Number two, Ring the Dragon Steamboat. Number one, WCW United States heavyweight champion, Sting. And, of course, the heavyweight champion of the world is Lex Luger. Now, oh, I forgot Ron Simmons, who's the actual heavyweight contender. Wow, that fucking WCW top ten I just did was unscripted, stream of consciousness. I need to take a breath. But, Cactus Jack attacks Sting on the ramp, and I hear the bell faintly ring on the audio theme. So, folks, finally... Almost 27 minutes into our context, I need order in the court for the case of team number one versus team number two in the Chamber of Horrors. Oof, that impression t- is hard to do. Now remember, folks, when it comes to the evidence portion of the show... I will try to be as clear and concise as I can to let you, the listener, know if it is a piece of positive evidence or a piece of negative evidence. Now I'm going to apologize right away. There is a reason this match is its very own special episode of Starman, okay? There's a lot of evidence to enter in. There's a lot of paperwork that had to get filled out for each one of these pieces, okay? So let's begin. Uh, The match starts kind of as you would think. It's chaos, everybody's trying to find a dance partner, and it's Fist of Fire and Fury and all sorts of shenanigans. And that's okay, because it feels like a no holds barred style match, which this clearly is. Now, Rick Steiner comes out to the ramp to rescue Sting, because as I noted, he was attacked instantly by Butcher and um, Cactus Jack. Alright? And when I say Butcher, I ain't talking about Butcher from the boys. Alright? Oi! is Butcher here! Should I? Alright, I'm gonna do the rest of the match as Butcher. Okay? So, pairs start to form in the ring, and it makes logical sense that folks are getting paired up with one another. Aligonte. Actually, you know what? I'm not gonna do the whole thing as Butcher. I, I, I forget that. Take two. Use take two. So, pairs start to form up, as you would naturally think, and we get some fantastic commentary from Jim Ross as he tries to set the scene. Aligonte, locking up fan Vader, scotty steiner taking on the diamond stud and rick steiner he's got the chainsaw it's fucking glorious because you know like i said everybody's kind of brawling and it's just kind of like okay this is a, a no holds barred wrestling match i guess and on commentary jim ross tried to set the scene and is forced to yell rick steiner with the chainsaw because rick steiner has picked up the chainsaw the cactus jack brought to the ring Rick quickly abandons his dream, though, of creating a skin suit from team number two and enters the cage. (laughs) The door shuts, and so now everybody's in the ring. Or in the cage, okay? Uh, Now, Sting is absolutely the number one babyface in the company, fired up, fighting a team of heels, no-holds-barred style. Like, he's doing a great job bringing it here in the beginning, absolutely just beating the shit out of people with Butcher's Stick, okay? And holy shit, I thought I was already on a bad trip, but all of a sudden, the camera cuts to the WCW Referee. Now, if you are not familiar with the WCW Referee, let me explain what it is. Um, I don't know if you all know what a, fish owl, a fishbowl or a fisheye lens is. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know, like a ring door. Think of it as like a ring door cam, okay? Uh, how, you know, when you get closer to it, the picture, you know, things in the picture look very big. And the further you are away from it, the things look tiny. Or uh, You know what? I can't even describe it. But it equates to fucking referee Nick Patrick is in the ring wearing a goddamn nerdy, helmet like he's afraid he's going to fall off his bike but the helmet is also has like these um, legs that attach to his shoulders to keep it steady and there's a goddamn camera mounted to it (laughs) so as we're in the referee view we we are seeing Nick Patrick's quote unquote point of view okay and we do get to see Vader beating up El Gigante and seeing anyone beat up El Gigante is okay in my book I also noticed there are a couple of caskets in the ring, inside the cage. Like, so, there's the ring, and the Hell in a Cell, Thunderdome-style cage is surrounding it. And, uh, you know, uh, there's obviously the fatal lever is attached to the timekeeper's area. Well, the corner where the timekeeper would sit. And then in the other corners, there's just some goddamn caskets, vertically. Just closed caskets hanging out. This is the first time I've seen it. No one has mentioned it at all, but, you know, I'm here to present evidence, so that's what I'm doing. While we're in Referee, we see Sting uh, save Eligante with the kendo stick, and he's absolutely beating the shit out of Vader, and Vader's taking it like a man because it's 1991 pro wrestling, and I'm here for this. This is really fun at first, even though it's like a trip, okay? Like, look, it's ridiculous, but at first, this is fun, okay? Listening to Jim Ross describe the rules is ridiculously comical because he's talking—he's just talking about the the chair of torture and the fatal lever king, but he lets us know because I'm looking around for the chair of torture. He tells us that the chair of torture will descend from the ceiling. He doesn't indicate how it happens when it happens, or indeed, why it happens, or where it happens, where is Gamora, oh no, it's what is Gamora, or why is Gamora, fuck, who cares, um, yeah, this is just great shit, uh, we, we cut back to the, a wide shot though, and then, we're back in Referee, and the casket, one of the caskets has fallen, okay? Scott Steiner is running because the casket almost crushes him, but there's also a dude in a goddamn kemp mask laying next to the casket that just fell. Jim Ross tries to put two and two together on commentary, indicating that there was a masked man hiding in the casket, as Scott Steiner beat the shit out of him, and then the casket fell over on top of them. I, I don't understand at all what is happening. We cut to ref some more, and I almost throw up, because the ref is like, what's going here? What's going here? What's going here? What's over there? Turn to the left, turn to the right, turn to the left, turn to the right. And every time he turns, I'm getting a little queasy, all right? Scott Steiner picks up the masked man and slams him onto the remains of the casket. Now, the masked man must be some sort of a professional sports entertainer because he knows he has to sell that he's in pain. So what does he do? From the flat back position, he lifts his arm into the air, looking like he's about to deliver a soliloquy or something like that. Like, alas, poor Yorick. But, you know, it it's just pain. Oh, boy. Sting then gets cornered back in the ring by Cactus Jack in the Diamond Stud, Sting gets down on, like, all fours and sprint crawls, I don't know what else to call it, across the ring, diagonal from them, like he's the goddamn Black Panther. Like, and I know that that's a stupid thing to get excited about, but first of all, who knew Sting was that fast? Second of all, it really puts in my head that Sting the character was fighting for his life. And I know that's stupid in a context of, dude, it's a wrestling match, but look, if they're selling to me that this is a match that involves chairs of torture and fatal levers, at least Sting is making me believe that he's in the fight of his life. Okay? Things kind of slow down, though, and we kind of enter, like, a Royal Rumble pace. Or maybe a Battle Royal pace is a better way to describe it, but it makes me think of those spots in the Royal Rumble where, you know... We all we have done the one through ten jobbers, but now we're waiting for like the late teens and Hulk Hogan to come out at 28 or something like that. And you know, it's just the part where nothing is scheduled to happen. Okay, everybody's kind of found a place where they're not close to one another. Everyone's like, what is it when you get fucking little kids together and it's like they're they're play they're side they're sideways playing or something. God damn it, what's the phrase? I don't remember, but it's like. The kids aren't playing together. They're playing around one another. I've ruined the joke, but that's kind of what everybody's doing. Eventually, though, eventually Sting and Vader take center stage, you know, in the center of the ring, and they're fighting, and the crowd is absolutely going bonkers, okay? Do not let it be said that at least during, you know... The earlier portions of this match, okay, they had the crowd. They wanted to see it. And we all know what Sting and Vader are going to be capable of producing. So seeing what's probably their first interaction with one another is a lot of fun. You know, I grew up in a household uh, with a big Sting fan, okay? It wasn't me. but So the Sting-Vader pay-per-view matches were legendary. in in the Johnny C. household. And uh, so I watched them a lot, and I appreciate them. They're not only nostalgic for me, but as an educated, quote-unquote, wrestling fan, I know that they're good matches. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, Sting hits a really deep clothesline, Invader goes flying over the top. Crowd, again, they're fucking loving this. All right? Now, a strange moment here, okay? Over on uh, another side of the camera, all right, we've got... Uh, the Butcher climbing the cage. Okay? Now, uh, he's he's climbing the cage with no one around him for no purpose. I tried to find purpose. I rewound the clip a couple of times and, and was trying to find him in the background so I could f- understand the context of why Butcher has climbed the cage. But I couldn't find anything. Eligante just walks over and pulls him down. Alright? As he pulls Butcher down, though... I could see behind him, completely on the other side of the cage, across the entire ring, Rick Steiner is also climbing up, and he was exactly where the Butcher was, but on the other side of the ring completely, and he just is looking around, and I think they're trying to get over that the Rick Steiner character is, how do I, is stupid. All right, uh, not, okay, look. It's 1991, I don't know, I'm trying to basically say that, they're trying to say, the Rick Steiner character is an idiot, right, he's like, uh, you know, I don't fucking know, man, I I don't even know, like, I, it's, I, I can't take this any further, but the Rick Steiner character is, is supposed to be easily confusable, okay, easily confusable Rick Steiner, uh, is the is the is what we're going to put a bow on it, okay? And he's just kind of like exploring the cage. I think that's what the Rick Steiner character is doing. He does eventually, after taking a glance from, you know, 15 feet up, he just takes a Spider-Man leap from the cage to the apron for no reason. It's not offensive. It is offensive, but it's not an offensive strike. Oh, I guess it was kind of fun to see, though, and try to understand. Now... Following up on Sting and Vader from earlier, Vader is on the outside confused. He starts doing his eh, eh, punches to somebody, I don't remember who, and Sting does a plancha over the top right onto Big Van Vader. However, Vader can't fall backwards to sell it because he's up against the cage. So, it kind of is what it is. Sting just kind of hits Vader gently. It looks gently because, you know, Vader falls into the cage and doesn't look as impactful, and Sting just kind of gently lands on his feet, and Vader doesn't leave his feet to sell. It's really too bad. It's a missed opportunity. I guess I, I was about to say I don't blame these guys. I mean, look, Sting is trying. Vader is trying. It is what it is, but, you know. Cut back to the referee now, and the Steiners have Cactus Jack set up to do their double-team bulldog thing, alright? However, if you look to the left of the referee, Abdullah the Butcher is just leaning against the ropes, breathing. (laughs) This is a common trope of this match. Abdullah the Butcher just breathing. And Abdullah the Butcher, the character, isn't breathing. Okay, Abdullah the Butcher, the person, is desperately out of breath. All of a sudden, for no reason... No narrative purpose, no prompting, no warning. The chair of torture begins to descend from the ceiling. Now, what they've done here is they've made a little tiny cage. You know, like in those matches where like Jim Cornette would be suspended up in the shark cage? Okay? so They got a little shark cage, and it has a goddamn electric chair inside of it. Okay? But a couple of things of note here. Cactus Jack is still about to be bulldogged into the ring from Rick, Ste- Rick he's up on Rick Steiner's shoulders for god's sakes they they realize they don't have enough room to do the bulldog so they do a fucking spike ddt scott comes from the top catches cactus on rick's shoulders and goddamn ddt's him it's insane as he does it though some creepy background music starts to be pumped throughout the arena <laughs> The goddamn Chair of Torture has its own theme song. <laughs> um, A cool visual here is Cactus Jack is in the center of the ring about to be crushed by the goddamn Chair of Torture cage because that thing ain't stopping, okay? It's coming down. And Scott Steiner is in the center of the ring like pumping his arms because he just hit the DDT. He looks up and realizes, holy shit, I'm about to get crushed too. Uh, but they do pull Cactus Jack out of, of the, the danger zone, <laughs> even though it exposes the business. But that's okay. I'll allow it because uh, Mick Foley went on to be a decent enough human being and had a good career, so I'm glad he got to stick with us, okay? Good Lord. So, but now that this shark cage with the chair of torture is in the center of the ring, we start to learn quickly that no one really has any room to get around, okay? With very little build or fanfare, we get our first danger sequence, As Vader pushes Rick into the chair of torture. Nothing happens though. Because remember you got to pull the fatal lever. Alright. Now Vader is still kind of new to WCW. And doesn't have his main event powers. So Rick Steiner is very easily able to just push Vader out of the shark cage. And beat the shit out of him. And Steiner line him right over the top rope. Okay. Now Rick after being put in the chair of torture is very curious about what this thing actually is. So he picks up a kendo stick, and he starts prodding the chair with it so he can learn about it. I'm not saying it's right, but I was laughing my tits off, all right? Cut to the outside, and Sting now is battling with Cactus Jack. Sting has the lid that was attached to one of those caskets, okay? Now, he puts... He holds he's got the lid basically in a military press position, okay? And he wants to swing the lid down on the cactus jack's head. But the, the 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 lid to the casket is way too long and way too wide for him to be able to swing it overhead style. So he just straight up says, "Fuck it." tosses it up into the air right above him and Cactus Jack he takes a couple steps backwards real quick and gravity takes over it falls right onto Cactus Jack's skull and he gets busted open and look man I know we're like seven minutes into the fucking uh chamber of horrors match and it's redonkulous and stupid but that was a cool spot I am sorry and I'm not taking it back All of a sudden, (laughs) as if to destroy all the goodwill that I had, eight men in white scrubs with their faces painted white walk out of the haunted house and down the aisle. They're carrying a stretcher. They're clearly all WCW extras because they're all decently sized men with mullets. (laughs) They get halfway down the fucking ramp and they all take a T bow and just get on one knee to watch the rest of the rest of the match. I I thought maybe like this was some sort of gimmick where it's like, oh, these guys are here to get Abdullah the Butcher back in the asylum or something like that. That's where my my brain went. But Tony says they're here to take the man that meets his demise in the chair of torture for medical attention. Abdullah the Butcher, again. Climbs up half the cage and just kind of hangs there for a while. Okay? As he's up there, the camera's kind of lingering on him, like, what's this idiot doing? Cactus Jack has just gotten to his knees after getting his skull crushed by Sting and the cactus, and holy shit, out of nowhere, Scott Steiner comes into the frame. He's inside the ring. Cactus Jack is on his knees outside the ring. Scott swings a kendo stick at full speed. It shatters. It shatters. It shatters over Cactus Jack's skull. This poor man is bleeding for the sport. Alright. I feel so bad that Mick Foley did all of this in this match, but in retrospect, it looks pretty fucking cool if you're just looking at it like a piece of entertainment, but, you know, (laughs) it's not like a movie where it's like, oh, that was a really cool stunt, and, uh, you know, I know that the dude was totally safe. Nope. Poor Mick Foley just, you know, broke a goddamn kendo stick with his own skull, but hey, whatever. Uh, eventually... Cactus, Jack, and Sting climb up to the side of the cage, and it looks like we're going to have a cool spot. Nothing happens of it, though, but I wanted to enter it into evidence because... Look, here's the thing. I'm not sitting here bloodthirsty, like, oh, well, they climb up the cage and nothing even happens. That's stupid. But the problem is is that the crowd pops for it, getting really excited, and then they kind of boo when nothing happens. And it's kind of like, look, if it's not safe, don't do it. Absolutely. However... If you know it's not safe and you know you're not going to do anything, don't tease it. Because then you're just setting up expectations that you can't deliver. So just avoid that and you'll be fine. All right. All of a sudden, we cut to the Steiner brothers working in tandem with one another. Who are they fighting? Well, not one of the many people I haven't even mentioned at all during this match. They've decided to beat up the guy in the gimp mask that popped out of the casket. uh, Who is now handcuffed to the cage. You know, no need to explain it, alright? Back to a longer sequence of just wandering around for a bit. Some of that Royal Rumble malaise, if you will, that I kind of explained. Out of nowhere, Cactus Jack runs full sprint at Sting, and they're both inside the ring. Sting sort of grabs Jack by the hair, catches him, and continues to run with him. Throws him over the top full speed, and Jack flies over the top, and not onto the floor, but into the goddamn cage. Again, Cactus Jack sacrificing his life for our entertainment. About 30 more seconds in the referee view after this. And you can tell from a tone of voice, I'm saying this is positive. Now, it's not positive because it was a fun experience and we saw some cool wrestling moves. But I was very curious because during this 30 second referee segment, it's basically just Nick Patrick trying to get the fuck out of the way so he doesn't interrupt people's spots. So you see spots sort of start up around him, and then the camera like looks the other way, because Nick Patrick's trying to get the fuck out of their way. So you kind of got to feel what it would be like to be a referee inside a match. And I've never been a referee inside a match. I've never even been in a sports entertainment ring. So I, I kind of enjoyed it. So who would have thought? Virtual reality is actually a thing that you can do, but This referee has given me a more intimate experience, and who would have thunk it? The Diamond Stud does get Sting into the chair of torture, but Scott Steiner saves instantly, so it just kind of feels anticlimactic, and that's only like the second time that they've teased a fatal lever pulling. So, I don't know, it just kind of was like, you know, in the rumble when you're teasing throwing people over, like there's that initial five seconds like, oh my god, is he going to get him? And then you realize they're just going to hang out on the ropes for the next two hours. (laughs) Uh, so I guess it's not that. So I will say that about this positive. JR does remind us, though, that Sting was safe because no one pulled the Fatal Lever. Immediately cut to the Fatal Lever, there's a cameraman standing outside with his camera directly on the Fatal Lever, and the entire screen, the entire television screen, is just the Fatal Lever. And it is absolutely switched into the on position. Folks, the Fatal Lever has fallen into the on position. The camera lingers for way too long, and JR tries to stop talking about the fatal lever because he realizes he can't talk about it because it's indeed in the on position. Uh, We cut to a long wide shot. We can't really see anything, but we do catch a fantastic glimpse of Elie Gante wandering around looking for something to do for about 11 seconds, and I think that's a lot of fun. We do see Abdul the Butcher and he's just leaning on Sting while he's choking him. And then again, Abdullah catching his breath. But he's also bleeding all over Sting, so... Ew. Just gross. Now we get our first of many Randy Anderson sightings. Now I noted that referee Nick Patrick is, is calling the action with the referee. Uh, referee Randy Anderson, though, is outside of the ring... He's realized, or someone has told him, that the fatal lever has fallen into the on position. So he has to climb the cage a little bit, because the fatal lever is not at standing level. It's at a little bit of climb level. He climbs the outside of the cage, reaches his hand in, and puts the fatal lever into the safe position. So crisis averted. For now. Rick Steiner, again, is walking around poking the chair of torture with the stick. I just... Like, he, he had a whole sequence to himself where he got to do this. Why is he still doing it? Now, there's a great moment as Abdul the Butcher is being beaten on the outside by Scott Steiner. And Cactus Jack just walks right past them. Because, I mean, when I say he walks right past him, I don't mean like he's running to get a weapon or something. Like, he's casually strolling, getting to the next spot, and he just walks past them at normal speed, and it's very humorous. He's going to get in position to tease a fatal lever pull. And so it's like, okay, well, we're finally, you know, getting to the the point where we're going to start teasing some, doing some false finishes here. As he starts to climb the cage to get to the lever, I notice that once again, it's already fallen into the on position. Diamond Stud, though, takes control of Scott Steiner and gets him into the ring and gets him into the chair. So we are getting into some hot sequences because the crowd is tense and screaming and shrieking like, oh no, pretty boy Scott Steiner can't get put into the fatal lever chair of torture. Scott is now strapped into the chair. The lever is down. Nothing happens. He does fight out pretty quickly, though, all right? Now, Cactus Jack was supposed to be there to tease that sort of false finish. There's no more false finish to tease, but Jack is still hanging, uh, dealing with the fatal lever. He does get it into the on position, at least, to sort of help the match save face. Sting pulls him down, because that's what you're supposed to do in a wrestling match. You're supposed to go after your opponent. As Sting pulls Jack down, though, the cage shakes, and the fatal lever once again falls into the on position. I catch Randy Anderson yet again fixing the switch, doing what he can to save this epic encounter. Uh, the Diamond Stud and the Butcher do have Rick Steiner dangerously close to the chair. He's in now, and Scott Steiner and El Higante rush over, and they and he, they try to save him. And look, this might this might be the dumbest fucking match you've ever heard described or ever watched. But that's how the finish is like that's how you win the match, and I will say the babyfaces are at least trying to not only protect their brother-slash-teammate, but they are at least trying to live within the rules of the match. It's as if they're trying to save Rick. Just just pretend in your mind they're trying to keep Rick from getting thrown over the top rope, and you'll be fine with the logic. okay? And that's kind of the way you got to look at it. Whether or not you agree with the logic of the match, they're following it here. At this point, I see out of the corner of my eye that Randy Anderson is just permanently attached to the cage, holding the fatal lever into the off position. Rick Steiner does get saved by Scott and Gigante, So, again, it's a good way to do a false finish tease. I'm giving them props here. And uh, all the mass of humanity gets away from the entrance to the little shark cage, and Rick Steiner is kind of wandering around free and clear. He sees that Butcher is near the entrance to the tiny cage. They start fighting. Abdul the Butcher gets Rick Steiner back into the chair of torture. Cactus Jack climbs the cage, and he's right in position for the pulling of the fatal lever. There's a great moment as he looks at Abdul the Butcher as if to say, Now we're going to kill these bastards, and says, Bang, bang! And does the gunshots. Rick Steiner is now fully in the chair. Abdul the Butcher is holding him so Cactus Jack can throw the fatal lever. Cactus Jack is in position. He has his hand on the lever. He looks and realizes he can't pull the lever yet because Rick and Butcher haven't finished their spot. Rick Steiner shoots out of the chair. Hits a very weak belly-to-belly on Abdul the Butcher and places him gently into the chair. It's as if Abdul the Butcher is a 400-pound baby, and Rick Steiner's gently putting him in a high chair so he can feed him. Okay, Jack is looking, and then not looking, and then looking again, trying desperately to find the right moment to do the, Oh, I pulled the fatal lever without looking, and Abdul the Butcher was in the chair, and I thought Rick Steiner was in the chair spot. But he can't do it yet. But he continues to look and then not look and then look and then not look. Finally, he just plays dead, hanging on the cage. And Why is it taking so long, you might ask? Because even though Rick Steiner has Abdul the Butcher into the chair, he cannot find the headpiece. You know the little headpiece that you attach to someone when you put them in the electric chair to kill them for the state? That, there's actually a thing attached to the chair that has to be attached to the person so you can win the match when you full pull the fatal lever. Good lord, I hope no one ever hears me talking about this match. I'll be embarrassed for life. But the headpiece is stuck behind one of the fat rolls of Abdul the Butcher. And I'm not saying that for comedic purposes. It really, really, really fucking is. Rick Steiner is desperately trying to pull this headpiece out of his fat roll. And of course, Abdul the Butcher is not going to help for two reasons. One, oxygen deprivation. Two, he's old school and we're not going to expose the business, brother. Rick finally frees the headpiece from the rolls, attaches it to the butcher. And Cactus Jack is just completely I'm doing the finger quotes, unconscious on the side of the cage now. Abdul the Butcher is finally in position. Someone. I rewound it numerous times, but I couldn't tell. But somebody yells, Now! And Cactus Jack indeed pulls the fatal lever. The lights in the arena go down, and some weak pyrotechnics go off on the outside of the shark cage where the chair of torture is held. <laughs> Abdul the Butcher starts shaking like he's being electrocuted. The pyro actually takes it up from like a 2 to a 12, and I'm legitimately concerned for the safety of Abdul the Butcher. On commentary, Tony Schiavone yells, got getting cooked! The camera zooms in on Abdul the Butcher, showing that the headpiece is absolutely no longer attached to the man, but he continues to convulse as if the state is getting their vengeance by executing this man for his crimes. The bell finally rings. The lights of the arena turn on. And Tony Schiavone says, I think he's well done, guys. And that concludes this horrible, horrifying Chamber of Horrors contest. Now look... (laughs) All in all, here's here's some interesting statistics about this match, okay? One, I realize, folks, it's only a 12-minute match, and I just talked about it for 30 minutes. I apologize, but I told you. I told you there was a reason that this match had its own episode, and now you know what it is. But we come to the most important part. What will my verdict be? And look, I'm going to say some positive things about this real quick, all right? The guys involved in this match who are workers, who care, who are not just out there being sideshow attractions, put in effort, okay? The Steiner brothers are working, Mick Foley's working, Sting is working, Diamond Stud is trying, but he doesn't get a lot to do, okay? Okay? Sting is working. Yeah, I said Sting, Jack, and the Steiners are all working. Stud doesn't have much to do. Gigante is a complete waste of flesh. Um, Abdul the Butcher is a waste as well. Vader is working, okay? But Vader is also very much a new WCW character. So you don't get to see, like, Ugh, uh. Vader you just kind of get this weird version of Vader that's like not super tough it's very strange actually if you're a fan of Vader's career like a big fan of Vader's career I do recommend kind of watching this match to get a glimpse of kind of like not invincible early Vader you know he doesn't look bad or anything it's just you know it's a different presentation so I respect those guys for going out here and having to work in this environment trying to entertain the fans that paid their money I do respect them for that, okay? Now, the idea of this match is fucking redonkulous, okay? It's ridiculously conceived, especially when you consider the fact that you have eight men in here and you're going to eat up a large portion of the ring landscape by putting in the, the chair of fatalness or the... the no, it's the, it's the chair of torture, excuse me. Um... And then this whole fatal lever contraption That they couldn't even get to work It's like, you know, if you sh- if you showed up On the set of a film And it's like, okay, here's where your character Aims the gun at the other guy And when you get the gun, it's like made of rubber And it's flimsy, and, and, and you, you go to the director And you're like, oh, you know, this is going to look bad on camera And the director's like, nah, it's cool Nah, don't worry about it, nobody will notice it Like, it's that sort of level of bad Okay And so it's It's very weird, it's like I don't blame the actors, I blame the directors. You know, it's like it's like the Star Wars prequels in a lot of ways. I don't blame the actors because the director didn't try hard to get a performance out of them that was different from what they were giving. All right? Now I like the Star Wars prequels. I'm totally fine with them. I I find the Star Wars Star Wars prequels not guilty. However, Team 1 versus Team 2 in the Chamber of Horrors it pains me because I love wrestle crap, but it's, it is guilty. It, it, it is guilty, okay? It's guilty and it's beyond their control. But speaking of control, I'm going to try to take back control of the Aqua K feed by ending this episode of Starman. But I can't thank you enough for coming along on this one. It was f- so much fucking fun and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, you know, if this comes up again, where we have the sort of special attraction, wrestle Crap type of deal that just has to be discussed at greater length, we will do so. But I want to make something very clear. We haven't found a whole lot of negative two-star matches guilty. We did find this one guilty. The worst match is still the negative one-and-a-half Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man Randy Savage steel cage match from Uncensored 98. And we will continue on this journey to see if anyone can take the title. So, subscribe to the Aqua Cave. Keep your eyes peeled. When we come back for the next episode of Starman. It's the Fatal Lever!